Welcome to Voir Dire, conversations from the program in criminal justice at Harvard Kennedy School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and today I'm speaking to Alec Karakatsanis, the author of Usual Cruelty, the complicity of lawyers in the criminal injustice system, and he's also the founder of the Civil Rights Corps. I've wanted to talk to Alec for a really long time because I think this book is a must-read for anyone who works in the criminal legal field, but also anyone who's just interested in thinking about the stories that we as a society tell ourselves about the role of that system in our lives. Alec debunks so many of the myths we tell ourselves about criminal justice with such moral clarity and with evidence. Without further ado, here's our conversation. So Alec, let's start by talking about language because I one of the things about your book that jumps out obviously from before you even open it is you call it the criminal injustice system. I hear people refer to the criminal legal system a lot, but why do you call it the criminal injustice system? I think language is obviously so important. It, it, it colors and in many ways determines how we think. And so it's very important that we use words that I think are, are, are descriptive of what's actually going on and in very similar ways to how the United States changed the name of the Department of War to become the Department of Defense. It was no longer socially acceptable to be launching colonial wars of imperialist aggression, and they needed to portray much of what the United States is doing around the world as defensive rather than uh, expansionist, right? And so they changed the name of the department. And, and, and the, same is the kind of, same kind of thing is happening with calling it the Department of Justice and the justice system. They're trying to convey that either the purpose or the effect of the American legal system has been and is now to do justice. And that's a very particular propagandistic claim and one that I think is not actually factually supported by the things that are happening every single day in the system. And so for me, I think it's really important just to use language that's going to get people to pause and think about what they're actually saying and what what system of mass human caging and race-based and wealth-based human caging that they're really talking about when they when they use the word justice. And, and, and in fact, for most people, the, the, the largest system of human caging in world history is not really consistent with their conception of justice. So I don't like to use the word justice system as a way of, of, of playing into that propaganda. And I, I do the same thing across the board with the system and, and the words that I try to use to describe the system. It's not just that one word. I think it's very important that we speak very descriptively and very intentionally about the things that we're talking about. That's a great segue, I think, into my, my next question, which is about what you call the punishment bureaucracy. And I think before we start to talk about the actual mechanics of what that bureaucracy looks like, maybe for folks who haven't been in the many different parts of the country where you have seen the, the criminal injustice system in action, paint a picture for what it actually what it actually looks like. like so where is the mismatch between criminal justice and criminal injustice? So I think the first thing that you have to understand and if you, if you haven't been directly impacted by the system or don't work in it, it might be difficult to really comprehend this, but we are caging human beings at a rate that is unprecedented in the recorded history of the modern world, right? Astronomical rates relative to other uh, countries that, that, that think of themselves as democracies, astronomical rates relative to our own history. So if you look at, at, at the history of this country from 1790 until about 1980, we had a very steady line of incarceration. Beginning at about 19... Uh, 80, it skyrocketed to five times the own, our own historical average. It's five or 10 times other countries. And we cage Black people at a rate six times that of South Africa, the height of apartheid. 
So when we talk about the criminal punishment bureaucracy, we are talking about all of the, the functionaries and bureaucrats and, and profit-seeking corporations and, and other vested interests that combine to create a system that takes 11 million people from their schools and homes and families and churches and communities of every single year and puts them into a government-run apparatus that is filled with tasers and handcuffs and police cars and public defenders and prosecutors and judges and probation officers and jail guards and, and prison guards and parole officers and, and private corporations making money at every single step of the way. And, and that entire bureaucracy is actually a very impressive, efficient machine. And when I talk about the criminal punishment bureaucracy, I am talking about that whole constellation of, of interests and individuals and entities and, and, and portions of our government that are devoted to making as efficient as possible the mass processing of human beings away from their lives and into cages. And so you call it the punishment bureaucracy. So let's talk a little bit about why why the choice of the word punishment. And I mean, I think this goes back to your point about whether or not it's actually a justice system or what the purpose of this apparatus is. But why the why what why the word punishment? If you if you talk to most people about why the legal system exists in the form that it does, you know, many people will, will tell you that it's the purpose is to punish bad people who do bad things. And there's this very, very deeply embedded notion that the path to a society where people harm each other less is by punishing the bad people that commit harm. The, the difficulty with this is that there's absolutely not one single shred of evidence that it's true. So, you know, we can, those of us who care very deeply about trauma, about pain, about people who hurt other people and the people who are harmed um, by, by any kind of form of coercion or hierarchy or violence. Like these are things that I, I care very deeply about and that, that keep me up every single night. For, for those of us who, who care very deeply about this, these issues, one of the big scandals of this system is that um, it has just never been true. And, and the empirical evidence um, is overwhelming that um, punishing someone for doing some harm to someone else is actually not the way to, to correct against that harm. And, and yet, um, the entire focus of this whole bureaucracy is this notion that bad things happen because bad individuals do a bad act. And harm happens because there's a bad person that we can trace it to. And, and, and so for me, when I look at a problem like, like uh, mental illness or a problem like gender-based violence, you know, I see social systemic causes of those problems. I see alienation, I see trauma, I see pain, I see poverty. I see toxic masculinity in our culture. These are, in my opinion, and, 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 and thankfully the empirical evidence backs me up, these are what cause people to harm other people in these ways. And yet our legal system solution to these is never to address those core drivers of harm, but to punish individual people. And the corollary of this, of course, is that many of these people who are obsessed with punishment, they tell us that the way to reform this system, so for example, to deal with the harm that police officers cause is to punish bad apple pops. It sort of presumes that like, if, if you see a, a problem with policing, it, it must be the result of an individual bad actor and not a system that is designed and constructed to lead inexorably to certain outcomes. So I think you see this same obsession with like individual blame and, and the, the, the response to individual blame is punishment. You see that both among the biggest proponents of mass incarceration and many of the you know, liberal reformers to the system, all of whom I think 
have just a profoundly incorrect view on how our society and how our culture and how um, all of these systems work and, and how harm actually happens to people. I'm also curious because there's also an argument to be made that the, the purpose of the system is not just punishment. It's also kind of the management of poor people and other problems in society that we don't necessarily care to answer elsewhere. I feel like, I don't know if you read Alexandra Natapoff's book, but that comes through very clearly in her assessment of who is in the misdemeanor system. Is that Basically, this is just a place where we're dealing with social, social problems that no one else is investing in. So I wonder how you think about how you think about that as a, as a, as the system is basically just a poverty management system. I have a lot of thoughts about that. I actually think it's even, even worse. I think if you look at the history of the U.S. court system, it has always been a mechanism for people who own things to preserve their wealth. And every single turn in, in the U.S. legal history, whether it was sanctioning and justifying and plotting and celebrating the theft of native land and the massacre and genocide of indigenous people, whether it was assuring that women couldn't own property or be involved in, in the criminal system or, or have harm and violence against women being even treated as a crime, whether it was the slavery and the system of racial terror that, that, that followed it, whether it was the system of convict leasing of, of Black people through the criminal system, whether it was the Jim Crow era, and now whether it was the era of mass incarceration, there's a through line. All of this is that Wealthy people, typically this, this means white, has used the criminal punishment bureaucracy as the mechanism, not only for what you say managing poor people, but for creating and perpetuating permanent underclass of, of, of people and, and for enforcing certain, this is, this is a sort of a separate point, but enforcing certain cultural and religious and elite moral norms, whether it's through the, the targeting of, of trans people today, all the way back to the history of of targeting as deviant certain types of behavior throughout this country's history. So, you know, I'll give you a, a more a particular example of what I mean when I say that the, what the purpose of the system is. And think of the war on drugs, which was begun in the, in, the, in the late 1970s. Since the war on drugs began, the U.S. government and local and state governments at every level have spent tens of trillions of dollars on the war on drugs. They have invaded foreign countries. They have surveilled electronically virtually all human communications around the globe. They have spray bombed huge sections of Latin American rainforest. They have stopped, searched, and frisked hundreds of millions of people. They've put tens of millions of people in cages for hundreds of millions of years. They've separated tens of millions of human beings from their families. They've killed tens of thousands of people in drug raids and police shootings, right? All of this, supposedly for the war on drugs. Now, if you look at the usage rates of drugs from when that war started to today, young people are using dangerous drugs at higher rates. There's much higher rates of overdose deaths, and many, many drugs are, are more widely used than they were prior to the war on drugs. Now, is it just the case that all of the people and bureaucrats who, who ran the war on drugs and are still running it today are just stupid? They don't realize that like all of those costs that I just listed for decades have actually made the problem worse. And, and, and all we need to do is come to them and give them this information and see didn't you realize that all these things were, were, were actually causing much more harm than the harm from drugs that weren't even effective at, at limiting the use of drugs? And they would just say, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that. We're going to end the war on drugs. Or, right? That's one theory that the system is just like innocuous and like, you know, just doesn't understand what it's doing. And the people that run it are bumbling idiots, right? The, the, the other theory is that actually the purpose of the war on drugs was never to create a society of equality and human flourishing and to reduce the harmful effects of, of drugs, particularly on poor people and poor communities, but instead it was to give 
wealthy interests um, and sort of cultural interests in our society that act at the behest of wealthy interests, a, a mass mechanism of coercion and control to keep people in their place, to extract more and more wealth from the lowest classes in our society, to, to recreate systems of, of racial hierarchy and oppression through different labels. So you could, you could, you know, I think, you know, study this question and really not be left with any other view than that the system's reasons for doing what it's doing are not the reasons that it tells us. It's doing something else. And there's many different ways to describe it, but I think the easiest way to describe it is it's, it's controlling large segments of our population in ways that benefit the most powerful and wealthy people in our society. I could see people pushing back against the idea that like there's a, you know, like a cabal of cigar smoking old white men somewhere out there that have put together the war on drugs. I, the counter argument would be Nixon's like, whatever that political consultant he had that said, oh yeah, we decided we were going to go after black people and hippies. And what, how do you do that? Drugs. But I, I'm curious, how do you respond to people that are saying, oh no, they're just, they're just, they're well-meaning, you know, bureaucrats who think that they're doing justice. Basically, how do you answer this question of intent, right? And are there really people using this intentionally or is this a system that somehow just has grown to be convenient to, to folks? I think this is such an important question. And I think there's a tendency, again, it dates back to this, it, it relates back to this idea of like individual blame and punishment. And so many people, they when you talk about the way that our society works, they, they want to think about it like um, if bad things are happening, then a group of bad people must be getting together in a conspiracy and deciding those things. When in fact, systems can work in service of particular interests, even if each individual actor in the system isn't fully aware of some large conspiracy and meaning to do real harm. So for example, the US criminal system can disproportionately arrest Black people, give Black people higher rates of punishment, right? Across the board, across offenses, all over the country, in every major city, without individual police officers or individual prosecutors or judges harboring racial animus, right? Now, many of them do, right? As, as we've seen from many of the, the, the leaks into police officer personnel files and, and Facebook posts, but, but, but people who work in the system and people whose combined actions um, result in certain effects, like for example, in Alexander Nadekov's uh, book, right? You, you see that almost everyone processed through low-level courts in this country is poor. Now, it doesn't mean that every single judge, prosecutor, and person working in the system at the bureaucratic level is thinking, I want to design a system where it only attacks poor people. But it means that the system operates in that way because of a wide variety of the combination of certain interests. So it's the same way that like, not everyone who is involved in the, in the you know, previous historical injustices around the world could be said to have shared in the evil intent of some of the main core architects of those systems like Nixon and, and the other people that developed that initial war on drug strategy, right? So I think it's, it's, it's very important that we, that we understand that, that powerful systems serve certain interests. They serve the interest of wealthy people, in particular in our society, that means wealth controlled by uh, predominantly white people without necessarily like, requiring that every person involved in that has that kind of evil intent. Keep in mind, there are many, many myths that are very powerful that we tell ourselves um, all the time about why we're doing this system. And many of the people who work in the system have fully bought into these myths. They believe 
at some core level that people who use and sell drugs are bad people. They believe that you know policing and aging people for possessing drugs leads to lower drug usage rates. Like I, I think that at some level, these myths are so powerful because so many people don't wanna believe that they've been part of something that is so painful and so harmful and so in effect, there's a powerful psychology there. So I think it's just kind of um, beside the point whether any one particular individual or official has evil intent. Many of them do, keep in mind. Many of them know full well all of the things I'm telling you right now. And they're doing these things, you know, for sort of personal career ambitions. So let's talk about one of those. I mean, you've already touched on one major myth, right? Which is that the system is at all evidence-based in accomplishing any of the things we think it's accomplishing. But before we get there, I think one of the things that you point out in your book, which is, is, is important to parse out, is this idea that we think of crimes as like these moral truths that have been set in stone. And you talk about, in, in fact, the, the, the choices, the political choices that are made all the time about what is and is not perceived or or prosecuted as a crime. So maybe draw out that distinction between our, our perceived reality and the actual reality. So the question of what is a crime is socially constructed. It, it's constructed in different ways at different periods in US history. Different states have different things that are crimes. Different countries have different things that are crimes, right? So just to give you a few examples, possessing opium, marijuana, and cocaine used to be perfectly legal in the US. It was done by all of the wealthiest you know, highest society people in this country. And each of them was made criminal as part of a deliberate campaign to give police more authority to target specific populations. In the case of opium, it was Chinese immigrants in the 19th century. In the case of marijuana, it was Mexican-American immigrants. In the case of cocaine, it was Black Americans in the South, right? This was the stated goal in, in converting the possession of those plants and plant derivatives into criminal behavior. The same is true if you look at things like gambling, right? It's still a crime in most U.S. cities to, for poor people to wager in the street when people are routinely arrested for them, dice games in the street. And yet it's not considered a crime for very wealthy people to wager over international currencies or the global price of wheat or mortgage-backed security. These are just deliberate political choices. And in fact, in the 1990s, it used to be illegal to do much of what we now call derivatives trading. A bunch of wealthy people got together, they paid a lot of money to a bunch of Democratic politicians, and Clinton signed new laws that changed the definition of illegal gambling and made many of the activities that we now think of as uh, mortgage-backed derivatives and other kinds of derivative trading totally legal. These are I'm not saying anything that, about any of these things being good or bad. I'm just for now pointing out that these are just choices that we make. Another really good example is wage theft. So wage theft by corporate employers dwarfs by orders of magnitude, all other property crimes combined. Burglaries, robberies, larcenies, shoplifting, motor vehicle theft, all of them combined are, are by a factor of, depending on how you estimate, five to 10 times lower than wage theft, which is about 50 to $100 billion a year. And yet in most states, wage theft isn't even considered a crime. If your employer steals from your wages, it's considered a civil dispute, right? The same is true with things like racial and gender discrimination, sexual harassment at work. If you have a boss that's sexually harassing you, that's a, considered a serious harm in our society now, at least now it is, right? But the way we deal with that harm is through the civil legal system. You have a civil legal claim against your employer and your boss. And, and so same is true with racial discrimination. We have chosen as a society to deal with that harm in a civil manner rather than a criminal manner. I could go on and on and on, you know, throughout this country's history, it's, you know, had been illegal to, to uh, perform an abortion on someone. 
it could be illegal to join a union or it could be illegal not to join a union, right? These are just choices that people are making. So most crime is socially constructed in this very way. And what that means in, in contemporary US legal discourse and contemporary US culture is that the people that control that, that the political apparatus get to decide what's a crime. And then even within what's a crime, those people decide who is investigated for those crimes and who is prosecuted for those crimes. So it can be a crime to possess marijuana and it can be a crime to do cocaine. But if you go to the campus of Harvard and Yale, police aren't doing raids like they are at Breonna Taylor's house, right? They're not doing, they're not arresting people for underage drinking. They're not, they're not having undercover informants and wiretaps and, and violent home raids into dorm rooms, right? But if you go right down the street in, in neighborhoods in Boston and in New Haven, Connecticut, Black people are being intentionally raided and arrested and caged and separated from their families for exactly the same behavior. And so we have to understand that, that what we define as a crime and then who do we investigate and prosecute for those crimes are just choices that are made by people who control our society. And I'm not saying anything yet about whether any of this stuff is good or bad. I'm just noting the, the, that that these are very particular political decisions. There's a really interesting argument. And again, like, it's so fun. I don't get a lot of time to go back and like reread books, but it was really fun to come back to this, to your book again, because I just hadn't really picked up on this the first time I read it. But you make a really interesting argument around the constitutional standard that we apply when um, evaluating whether or not something should be called a crime. So I guess, can you first explain like what strict scrutiny is and why, and then why it's not applied to criminal laws, but possibly should be? I can certainly try. I, mean, the life <laughs> of me, I don't, I don't understand, you know, how the courts have gotten away with this for so long. So, but basically the, the point is the Supreme Court of the United States has said very clearly that anytime the government wants to take away one of our fundamental civil rights. It has to meet something called strict scrutiny, which basically just means it has to have really good reasons for what it's doing. And what it's doing has to um, only take away your right to the very limited extent that it's absolutely necessary, right? So, you know, an example of this kind of thing is that the, the court has held that, you know, you have a, a fundamental right to, to marriage. You have a fundamental right to take care of your children. And so if the government wants to intrude on certain, like, you know, rights and, 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 and your ability to take care of your kids, it has to have really good reasons and it has to be very narrowly tailored. So the government can't like take your kids away from you, for example, right? Without meeting a very, very high. Another example of, of one of the fundamental rights is the right to bodily liberty. The court has said for many, many, many decades that one of the most important and fundamental and core rights that human beings possess is the right to your body's liberty. Freedom from the government putting restraints on your body, putting you in a jail cell, putting you in prison, right? So. But even though you have that fundamental right, there is no court case in Supreme Court history that actually grapples with the question of, well, if you have a fundamental, shouldn't the government have to prove before caging you for possessing a marijuana plant or shoplifting or whatever, that it's absolutely necessary to deprive you of your right and that it, it serves some compelling government interest. And so what's so fascinating about this is that we actually know that caging people for, for possessing uh, a plant isn't actually uh, correlated at all with less usage of, of drugs. So the same is true even with, with most other crimes, even so-called violent crimes, right? We actually know that caging people for these things actually leads to more violent crime in the future. So it's not a way of reducing violent crime. 
So one of the things I ask in my book is, why is it that the courts have never forced the government to prove um, that any particular sentence is necessary? And you know, the government might be able to prove that in certain cases if the person poses some kind of a threat and is imminently dangerous to other people. But the fact that the courts have never even bothered to enforce one of the most fundamental principles of, of US constitutional law in the criminal context should be very, very revealing, particularly for those people that go around saying we, have, we live in a society of the rule of law and that these are law enforcement officials. And here is one of the most foundational principles of US constitutional law that judges and prosecutors and police have just never bothered enforcing in the criminal law. So instead what we have is a regime of mandatory minimum sentences where my clients were getting five, 10, 15, 20 years life in prison for possessing crack cocaine without anyone ever have to showing that it did anyone any good, let alone that it was the least restrictive means necessary of, of, of pursuing some really important government interest. So it's interesting because you you frame it in terms of sentencing, which I think is really interesting. But I I was thinking when I was reading it also in terms of just like criminalizing something, right? That like if if something ultimately down the road could lead to the deprivation of your liberty, then why have we decided that X is a crime for, you know, you use the example of, of substance use or possession. But yes, it may, I guess it also makes perfect sense in the sentencing context. I mean, just to follow up on that, like, like on your point, imagine if tomorrow the state of Massachusetts said, we're going to make the possession of blueberries illegal. And what if, you know, you went to a, a picnic and, and there's a one-year mandatory prison sentence for possession of blueberries? And you went to a picnic and someone observed you handing your child or your, your brother or your partner or whatever a blueberry. Now, all of a sudden, um, you're accused of distribution of blueberries, which has a mandatory minimum of three years in prison, right? Now, you could be handcuffed, caged, put in solitary confinement. You could be separated from your child, right? Um, all for possessing this blueberry. And nobody would ever have to prove that the government had a compelling interest in banning blueberries and that caging you for possessing blueberries served that interest whatsoever. What's so fascinating to me is that even in our current world, if, if we had a blueberry possession law, the government, instead of arresting you and prosecuting you for it, if it just came and said, we're taking your child away from you because you gave your child a blueberry, or let's say a more realistic example is the government says sugary sodas are are bad for children. And so any parent who gives their child a sugary soda is endangering their child and they're going to take them away. That law would be subject to strict scrutiny because you have a fundamental right to raise your children. And so the government would have to show that not only that they have a compelling interest in preventing you from giving your child a Dr. Pepper or Coca-Cola, but that the best way of serving that interest is to take your child away from you when you did that, as opposed to anything else they might do, like giving you educational classes or whatever. And so, but if if, if they prosecuted you for handing Dr. Pepper to your child, they could actually accomplish the same thing. They could put you in a cage and actually take you away from your child and they never would have to have any scrutiny. And this is a fundamental contradiction in US constitutional law. And I think it's such a scandal that all these fancy professors and judges, there's not a single legal opinion from the US Supreme Court um, that grapples with this question at all. And, 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 and to me, it's such a profound and, and, and tragic joke that in a legal system that purports to value liberty, the highest body in the U.S. has never even contemplated this actual central fundamental question in the administration of criminal law. Especially, and you point this out in the book, and given how much of the Bill of Rights or how much we think of our constitutional law is committed 
to write specifically in the criminal context, but it's like once the charge initiates, right? And we can argue about whether or not those are the rubber, where the rubber hits the road there, whether people actually get the protections of those rights. But there, you know, so much of, of what we think of the protections that we have are in the criminal context and it's, it's not coming out here. Let's assume, you know, for a second that we don't have strict scrutiny. We don't have to assume it. Let's just accept that we don't have strict scrutiny in, in the sort of applied to the determination of what is a crime. What would you say in response to folks that say, fine, maybe the process by which we choose what is criminal is political and illegitimate, illegitimate at times, but we know that the crimes are out there and we all know what's illegal and then folks violate the law and we have a social contract to, to obey the, the rule of law. And so when, when people violate the law, even if it wasn't legitimate when it was made, you know, they still should be punished because they didn't follow the rules that we set out. Well, I mean, I think it's as a, as a policy matter, almost none of the violations of the law are being prosecuted. So, you know, almost none of the tax evasion that's happening is being prosecuted. None of the wage theft that's happening is being prosecuted. Almost none of the sexual assault that happens is being prosecuted. Very few of the drug offenses that are happening are being prosecuted. So we're not really, I mean, the, the whole point is that we're only looking for these crimes in some places, sometimes against some people. And it's very selective, right? So when police and mayors and, and local governments are deciding where they're going to go look for crime, they go to the poorest neighborhoods. They go to the black neighborhoods. They go to the immigrant communities, right? These are, this is a, a separate freestanding concern with how elites use the apparatus of the criminal punishment bureaucracy to target the most vulnerable people in our society. And, and this is a separate point that's very important since the rise of the modern police force, at least in the 20th century, its sort of main function has been trying to crush social movements that are trying to build power in working class communities. So that's why over the course of, of the last 120 years or so, police have routinely broken up strikes, infiltrated organizing, tried to, tried to disrupt the civil rights movement tried to disrupt the Black Panthers. You know, the greatest threat, so-called, you know, if you look at the FBI files and a lot of their communications with local police, they saw the greatest threat to America as the, the free breakfast program by the Black Panthers. And, and that's, you know, the Chicago police and FBI killing Fred Hampton. And all the way up till today, with, with the incredible, what we're learning about how police are targeting the BLM movement, animal rights movement, environmental activism. So Make no mistake, when you, when you give a lot of power uh, to these carceral bureaucracies, they're gonna use that power selectively. They're not gonna be targeting the crimes of, of wealthy people by and large. They're not gonna be targeting the crimes that police commit against other people. They're gonna be ignoring those crimes. And so what's so funny about them calling themselves law enforcement is that they only enforce some laws against some people some of the time. And how they decide to do that is all based on power. The second thing I'll say is that Many of the things that are crimes in our society, if you care about, about them, if you think that we, for example, want a society that where there is less physical assault or you know, less drug use, that's something that you care about. Like there is no evidence that, that criminalizing and incarcerating people for those things is actually the way to get to that society. So for those people who say, well, you broke the law, you should face a punishment, that makes so many assumptions. It makes an assumption that we should actually have that law that it does any good and that punishing someone for doing it actually also does some you know, extra 
form of good. And, and, and there's just no evidence for that. And so like, we have to think as a society, like what, do, what are our values? What do we care about? And let's actually adopt policies that, that lead to the realization of those values, not to their frustration. I want to move on to the complicity of lawyers in, in this, in allowing the system to perpetuate. But before we get there, and you may not have an answer to this, but how would we define crimes and enforce them in a way that you would see as legitimate? I'm going to give you a more radical answer. But before I do that, let me just say, you don't have to agree with my more radical point to understand that we could shrink the current system by 80% and still have the system that is about the same size and reach as every other uh, you know, comparable country in the world and that the same size that we had for our entire history. So 80% of it, right? It's really important to understand that 96% of how police spend their time has nothing to do with what police themselves call violent crime. So before I give you my more radical answer about like what a different society might look like, we could have a society that looks very similar to our current society. We could start by ratcheting it back to what it looked like in 2010, and then ratcheting it back to what it looked like in 2003, and then ratcheting it back to what it looked like in 1997, right? And like, it's not like there was this sort of chaotic anarchy in the US before we had mass incarceration, right? There were very particular policy choices that were made. So I independently have a much more radical view. And that view is that most of what we think of as crime in our society and much of the harm results from the deep structural problems in our world, like incredible inequality and poverty, massive amounts of trauma experienced by people starting at a very young age, a lack of human connection and relationship to each other. We have divested so much of our society from the kinds of bonds that hold us all together, the kinds of things that build up community and, and, and a sense of, of, of caring for each other. We have destroyed so many of those bond, bonds. We have alienated so many people. And, and, then, we, and then we have these, these undercurrents of very, very dangerous sort of cultural phenomena like toxic masculinity, right? And, and so what, when I think of like a society that looks really different, I think about what would it mean if we were, instead of investing in pain and punishment and, and sort of state-based violence, if we actually were investing in the kinds of things that communities need to thrive and flourish. So instead of prisons and tasers and guns and handcuffs and tanks and military aircraft, we were investing in you know, universal pre-K programs and, and universal healthcare and local community-based violence interruption programs and poetry and theater and music and art classes for young people. And all the kinds of things that actually like connect people to each other. And I know this sounds kind of like pie in the sky and, and really naive, but like I, I, I really, really do believe, and, and all of the evidence from other comparable countries supports this view, that if you invest in people and, you, and people are able to meet their basic needs without being sexually and physically assaulted as they go about their lives, without being traumatized, without being uh, thrust into violent communities, you know, going their lives without um, adequate nutrition and medical care and being exposed to lead in their water and, and air they can't breathe and being exposed to teachers who care about them and, and, and exposed to, to things that give them joy and, and that they love to explore and are curious about from a young age. If you do all of those things, people aren't gonna harm each other as much. And, 
That's a fundamental truth. And then for when people do harm each other, we need to develop ways of building those bonds and community through more restorative processes that can transform what, what was a traumatic, painful, harmful experience by holding the person who did the harm accountable in a way that actually prevents that harm from happening in the future. Our current system doesn't do anything for crime survivors on that, on that front. It, at best, offers them an impersonal uh, kind of horrific experience through the police and prosecutorial systems. The person who harmed them is then thrown into a cage, often to be sexually and physically assaulted themselves, to be deprived of sunlight and fresh air, and to be thrown in a system that dehumanizes them even further, and it takes them away from the bonds and relationships in their own family life that could, that could support their life going forward and, and, and help them build something different when they get out. And then they are thrust back out in the community with no support, with a stigma, and unable to get a job that will, that will support themselves, and, and often under the carceral control of the state in some other format. So like, when you actually like, pull on all these threads, you see that we're doing all of the wrong things. At every single turn, we're breaking people. We're not only breaking people, we're breaking the bonds that connect people to each other, and we're spending trillions of dollars to do it. It's interesting as you're describing that world, what you're, you know, what you're describing is radical in many ways and is also you are describing what relatively affluent people get right when harm occurs and and so it is familiar to to many people in this country like how we would you know what it would look like if we lived in a society where where folks had adequate childcare or they had the you know they had second chances they had teachers that cared about them etc there are many people who are familiar with what that looks like, right? It's actually not that radical. It's just it's just only for certain people right now. So it's it, yeah. That's, I mean, imagine like like you know when I got into fights at school, right? Because of the way I looked and and you know wh- what neighborhood I was going to school in, like my parents were called, or maybe I just went to the teacher's you know office or the principal's office or something, and and we had a conversation about why the fight happened and how I felt and and how I was feeling about it afterward, right? And right down the street, you know, different school district that has, you know, filled with cops and, and children who are, who are very, very poor, they get into a fight, it's recorded as a crime and they're prosecuted and they're given a juvenile record and, and they're taken away from their families office, right? And, and, and so it's not, you're right. Like it, it, we, we already know what this, this looks like, what a, what a society that actually cares for other people and, and and, and, and holds them and holds them accountable, but also like uses those experiences to build connection. We know what it looks like. We see it all the time in, 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 in spaces that are filled by affluent people. But I also don't wanna, I mean, I, I wanna just say that like a lot of what's possible in those affluent communities is happening because of, of, of the pain and suffering that they're causing right down the street and around the world. So a lot of US, you know, current US affluence is based on system of land expropriation and sort of colonial violence. And so, you know, we can't be too flippant about it, but like, but in terms of like, is it like a radical notion? Not at all. We already, some people in our society are already creating those kinds of things for themselves. Yeah. So I want to, I wouldn't call this switching gears, but, but sort of step into now compared to that vision, I guess what, I mean, you have a pretty robust critique of the, the, criminal justice reform movement and the ways in which criminal justice reform can be, I think the way you describe it is superficial and deceptive. So what do you mean by that? And what is your critique of, of criminal justice reform? 
many of the people that currently call themselves criminal justice reformers are the very same people who profited from and spent their entire careers building the system of mass contagion. So I think a lot of what's called reform now is sort of a cynical joke. It's, it's an effort to trick people who, because you know, there's a lot of cultural energy around uh, racial justice, around changing these systems, around criminal justice reform. And so a lot of these elites understand they have to pay some kind of lip service to this. So what they end up doing, and this is really why, because I think this is a profound threat, everything that we work on, what they end up doing is they, they are proposing as reforms things that actually preserve the core architecture of the system and even expand it and won't actually change all of the underlying injustices. But they're hoping that this sort of veneer of like, you know, putting these labels of like, a, oh, this is bail reform, right? Well, the thing that most people are calling bail reform of the cash bail system will actually lead to more people in jail without cash bail. The, you know, the multi-billion dollar bail bond industry, which only exists in the US and the Philippines, it profits off of charging people fees for their, because our legal system doesn't let people out of cages prior to trial because they can't pay. That industry, you know, reform for that industry is getting rid of the bail bond industry, but them being the companies that sell you electronic monitoring devices and drug tests. So what they want is the same group of people making the same amount of money off of the same impoverished and marginalized population, but putting a different label on their business, a different facade on the storefront. All throughout the system, you can see this. You can see this with the reform of so-called body cameras, right? After the death of Michael Brown, it became the sort of cause celeb and liberal, liberal reform circles to say, well, we need to get body cameras for all these police. What most people don't know is that the police for years actually wanted body cameras. They were advocating for them, but they, they had a problem though. They couldn't get the billions of dollars in funding to give them these new surveillance cameras that they control all over the country for every officer. So what do they do? They use their own violence and brutality to get liberal reformers to partner with them to give police billions of dollars in new technology. Now think about what these cameras do. And the ultimate goal, which we're now seeing them realize, is connecting these cameras to facial and voice recognition software that they run through cloud computing databases hosted by Amazon and Microsoft and Palantir. All of these corporate interests of, you know, had, had been planning this with the police. And the police understood that, that these cameras are outward looking. The police control them. They're very rarely going to be used to hold the police accountable. And instead, they're going to be used as a huge tool of surveillance, recording all of the activities in the poor, predominantly Black and immigrant neighborhoods that police go. And so instead of having a debate about why are the police in these neighborhoods? Why do police have guns? Why do we need police for this? Like these central questions. Instead, we're asking questions like, um, how can we get police more technology they can use, better technology, change what they're, you know, they're, they're like sort of change how police think about their job. Like this is a fundamental core of what I was trying to get at, at least in the first essay in the book. And I, I developed some rules of thumb. And one of the most important ones is if a reform re like sort of contemplates more money, more resources and more power going to the system actors and to the bureaucracy, it's a bad reform. If it is removing power and money and resources and discretion from that criminal punishment bureaucracy, which is so metastasized and wasteful, it's a good reform. And the body cameras clearly fail on that metric. And, and they're one of the most scandalous of these because they, they have taken so much good energy from so many well-meaning people over the years and actually handed the police one of the biggest victories in, 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 the, in the era of modern police. You mentioned your rules of thumb, and I don't, I don't want to leave this without 
without mentioning them because I think they are very a very good tool of analysis for for looking at proposed reforms. So, what are some of your other rules of thumb for evaluating criminal justice reforms? Yeah, I mean, I think there's different ways of looking at it, but you know, one big one is as I mentioned, does it shrink or or expand the criminal punishment bureau? Another one is who is the reform giving more control and discretion and power to? So, you know, a reform might give more control to judges to do something different. But like judges have throughout their history shown that if you give them more power and control, they actually will expand the carceral bureaucracy. They're part of the carceral bureaucracy. So it's giving more control to judges or is it giving more control to, let's say, community-based organizations, right? Another big question is, is it forward-looking only or is it also backward-looking? So, you know, like there's a lot of these, to take one another example, like, a lot of these states are legalizing marijuana. Well, that's great. But what we're seeing now is not only are they legalizing marijuana, but they're not going back and invalidating all the prior convictions that were, that were you know, 85 to 96% um, of Black people and, and, and Latinx people, right? Almost all poor people. What they're not doing is reserving the business licenses for the multi-billion dollar marijuana industry for people that were directly impacted by the prior system. Some places actually like Oakland are trying to reserve marijuana business licenses for people that were directly impacted by the system. For people that were selling marijuana at a time when you became separated from your children for it. And now we've got people like John Boehner becoming a multimillionaire through marijuana industry, right? So like, is the reform forward-looking or is it also backward-looking and offering some form of reparation to the people and communities that were harmed by these systems? And that, that same example, I use the example of marijuana, the same is true of police brutality and and, and many other sort of forms of, of reform that, that typically come with like some new shiny set of, of, of policies and procedures, but no accountability for what happened. I could go on and on, but like, those are the kinds of, of considerations that, that you think about as rules of general rules of thumb um, for whether you support something. And then the other one that I'll mention isn't sort of substantive, it's more procedural. And, it, and it's, it's like, how did the reform come about? Was it the idea of a um, powerful elite person? Like, is it a bill that like Kamala Harris and Sally Yates introduce? You know, is it a policy that Eric Holder sets out from the Justice Department on down? Or is it something that was won through grassroots organizing? And, and this is why it's so critical. The same exact reform can be, can help us on a path to dismantling the harmful system or can be something that's very dangerous to that path. In the same way that like, you know how firefighters sometimes will set a fire around a forest fire to stop it from growing. Well, elites will often try to propose little tweaks and little reforms to prevent energy from ordinary people growing too much. The opposite metaphor is like a snowball rolling down a mountain. If a local community gets together and it proposes some kind of reform and organizes people and brings them involved and then they win that battle, now you've got a bunch of people that are invested and excited and ready for the new fight and it builds on itself. So a lot of elite people understand very carefully that like they don't, they want to stop organic growth and organizing and social movement. And so they want to come in and, and offer something, some kind of little fix right away that's not going to change too much, but that could diffuse a lot of the ongoing energy. Whereas a lot of us are thinking about how do we organize to, to, to to win even incremental battles because one incremental battle can build on itself. So, so that's more of a, a procedural point and, it, and it's kind of difficult to quantify in a short podcast, but it's, the question is kind of like, 
how did the reform come about? And did it come about in a way that is building power and experience and capacity in directly impacted people who are organizing together? Or was it some like policy idea that was passed down on high by Harvard or by some you know, elite politician? And I think that difference in how it happened can really matter sometimes too. That kind of brings me nicely to the Civil Rights Corps. And I, we, you know, we could talk for an, an, another hour about the work of the Civil Rights Corps. So, but I guess my, what I want to understand is sort of how your, how this thinking leads you to founding the Civil Rights Corps. Because so can, you, can you describe what it is and the work that you've been doing and how you are living these principles in your work? I think our, our organization is, is really, like many organizations, is, is, is trying to do what, what little we can in a, in a world of profound injustice to contribute to social movements that are trying to change some of the things that cause the most harm in our world. And we're, we're, we're trying in our own little corner, you know, we, we started as, as a mainly a litigation organization that was conceiving and filing big impact innovative novel civil rights cases, challenging things like the US money bail system or the rise of modern debtors prisons or systemic injustice in prosecutor offices or systemic police brutality. And then as we've been, and, and the goal you know, is to do that work in conjunction with partners all over the country who are organizing to build power to, to change the way these systems function. Local organizers, directly impacted people, public defenders, and, and, and artists, musicians, you know, we have an artist in residence, a poet in residence, musician in residence, to do all of that work in a way that changes the narrative that our society has about the system of mass human caging and about the racial and economic drivers of, of that system. And to expose people to a really different perspective of like, what is this system doing to human beings and why is it doing it? And so we try to use our faces and more recently as we've expanded our other work, our our narrative building work, our policy advocacy, our direct support of, of people on the ground. We're trying to like use some of the expertise that we've developed in how these systems function to work in a variety of different ways with people around the country that are trying to dismantle it. And, and it, it's, a, it's really the honor of a, of a lifetime to, to work with our clients who are, who are some of the people that are, that are most traumatized and brutalized by these systems to try to fight for a, for a system that that you know is accountable to to the things that they need to thrive in their lives. I could have a million more questions, but I want to be respectful of your time, and I also think that's probably a, a wonderful place to end. Thank you so much. This has been on my list for such a long time. I've really wanted to talk to you. I've I just love the book so, and I'm a big fan of the rest of your work that you're doing. So good luck with everything, and we'll be in touch. Thank you so much. It was really great meeting you. All right, take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to Poddington Bear for composing our theme music, to Brian Welch for coordinating everything necessary to make this podcast happen, and to the folks at PCJ at the Kennedy School for supporting it. Take care.